God's plan for the renewal of heaven and earth is much like his plan described in the Old Testament. He is a refining fire that gives way to new growth, like in Isaiah 6.13 and elsewhere. This is how God's people overcome while under attack. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Today's sermon comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, starting in verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word. You have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me pray for us. Lord, this is your word. I ask that uh, by using a ridiculous person like me through a ridiculous act like preaching that you would accomplish glorious, miraculous things among us even today, whether it be saving faith or the transforming faith of the saved that sanctifies us and makes us more like you. I pray in this time, Lord, that you would give us good reason to hope, good reason to take heart, to take courage, because you have overcome the world and you are the one with the key of David. I pray that we would see you there at the end of the corridor of our life with the door swung wide open and no one gets to shut it because you are preserving that door. You're keeping it open for us. I pray all these things through the power of the Holy Spirit, the way that Jesus Christ has made for us to our Father in heaven. Amen. You guys can be seated. I like to reference a lot of the time the, the C.S. Lewis series of books called The Chronicles of Narnia. Um, I want to start by, by pulling out just a bit from the second book in that, in that seven series of books. The first one was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which introduces four children from England, the Pevensey kids, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, and they have this wild adventure in the uh, mystical fantasy world of Narnia, uh, and they live there as kings and queens, fulfilling a prophecy, uh, and all is well until one day after ruling for 20-something years and they're grown adults, uh, they go wandering through the forest and somehow end up back in our real world, back in England, and they're kids again. Uh, and the second book of the series uh, is called Prince Caspian, and the, these Pevensey children, they find themselves yet again about a year later in our time back in Narnia. But the problem is hundreds and hundreds of years have passed in Narnia. And so Aslan, the king, the lion, the great, the, the great king of the world, uh, and, uh, Peter, and the legend of Peter, Edmund, and Susan, and Lucy, that, that's far gone. That's, that's fairy tales as far as the modern people of, of, of Narnia are concerned. No one's seen Aslan in hundreds and hundreds of years. No, like, we've all heard the stories, but now if, if you're a true Narnian, uh, if you're still loyal to that idea, it's, it's just that. It's, it's, they're just ideas. They're, they're all kind of fairy tales that we were brought up on to teach us like the, the ethos, right? The ethos and the philosophy of what it means to be a, a true Narnian. And now the four children have shown up in this 
wild, overgrown version of Narnia where everyone's forgotten about them in Aslan. They have to get someplace very important. They have to go and meet up. They're trying to look for the, the true king, the true future king of Narnia. And he's a, he's a young man, maybe 13 or 14 years old, and his name is, is Caspian. So they're trying to find him. And they're trying to wend their way through the woods. And all day long, they don't really know where they're going. Uh, but the, the youngest of the children, Lucy, uh, it keeps on thinking she sees flashes and shadows, hints uh, in, in, in the in the woods, in the forest of, like, I think I see a lion. That's got to be Aslan. And other kids, if you get to know them through these stories, they, they never believe Lucy, right? Dun, dun, dun. She's always right. Um, but they, they don't believe her. They don't believe her. And so they, they camp out that night in the middle of the woods, and they're all just lost, and they're kind of defeated. And in the middle of the night, Lucy wakes up, and she sees the lion, this, this kind of shadow, the silhouette of this lion creep into the woods. And she's not scared because she doesn't think, oh, lion apex predator, she thinks, Aslan. So she gets up and follows this, this hint of a line through the woods into the clearing, and what'd she find? Aslan. And they have this wonderful reunion, this, this happy thing. That, that, and so then she goes, oh, well, we got to get to Caspian. He goes, yeah, uh, all day long you thought you were seeing me, and you really were. Why didn't you tell the others to follow you? Why? I wasn't so sure, and I don't think they would have believed me, and he just looks at her. Well, it's not my fault. Maybe it was my fault. Maybe, maybe I should have tried to persuade them harder. I don't. And he goes, yeah, okay, yeah. Listen, you have to follow me tonight. I'm going to take you where you need to go. So go back and wake up your brothers and, and, and sister and tell them to follow you as you follow me, and I'll get you where you need to go. And she goes, but they're not going to believe me. I'm going to wake them up. I'm going to wake them up, and they're going to be really mad because I woke them up out of their sleep because we've been marching all day, and they're tired. They won't believe me. What do I do if they, they don't believe me? It doesn't matter. You need to wake them up and tell them. But what if they don't follow me, Aslan? Then he goes, then I guess you'll have to follow me alone. But I, what if they don't come with me? Like Those are my brothers and my sister. That's my family. To, to follow you alone? And he goes, which is it going to be? Will you, will you follow me even if you have to do it alone? Even if the family tie ends up getting cut? Even if some doors that you want to keep open, like the door to Edmund, the door to Peter, the door to Susan, the door to acceptance and believability, the door to not being called a fool because you followed some random lines of the woods? Or will you, will you follow me even if you have to do it alone? I think that's the place a similar place that the church in Philadelphia is in, which Jesus is addressing here in the book of Revelation. Only one of two churches in this entire series of letters, Philadelphia is one of two that uh, Jesus doesn't have any rebuke for. He doesn't have any criticism. He only has approval and promises and encouragement. Possibly they were a small church. See, I, I've spent much time, especially in the front end of this mini-series in Revelation on these seven churches, talking to you about the cities and the cultures, the surrounding kind of thing that was happening around these churches, and I don't have much to say to you today about what Philadelphia was like. Do you know why? It's because I've already said it. I've already said it in those, those other sermons. It, the, the church in Philadelphia is facing the very same sort of persecution, the same sort of having doors slammed shut in their face. They can't enter the marketplace and do business like normal people. They're not allowed to go and, and, and interact with any sort of approval or acceptance in their society because they're the dirty, filthy Christians. And that's, that's what they're facing too. And in this case, they were possibly a, a small church because Jesus says in verse 8 that, you know, I, I, I know that you have but little power. You're not important. Unlike the church possibly in Sardis that we covered last week, a church possibly, quite likely, plausibly, that was a larger, more influential, influential and powerful church in their society, in their city. Maybe well approved of. Maybe they were having church conferences at their place and, and the, the pastors were writing books and they were on the conference circuit and, and everyone wanted to, to be like that church. Here, Philadelphia probably is a smaller, less important, humble church. But they, all, they had all the power they needed Hear this, they had all the power they needed to persevere and keep the name of the Lord. They had all they needed for their witness and for their faith. Regardless of what other church, churches may or may not have had, 
Philadelphia apparently believed that they had what they needed and they were going to take it and run with it. They were going to stick with that. So let's, let's start by telling you, I'm just, going to, I'm just going to give you the main idea of today's sermon, all right? Here's the main idea. You are preserved by the one who loves you. So persevere with the one you love. Now, uh, my, my friend Tim Bice in, in Albany at Greenbrier Church, our churches are preaching through Revelation together. And so we work on these sermons together. And so basically we take the front end of our week and we, we vomit out all of our study that we've been doing on these passages, commentaries and videos and articles and blogs and research. And, and all of our notes will we'll combine five, six, seven, eight pages of notes into one document. All kind of scattering it on the floor in front of us in a document on Google Docs. And then going, all right, what's the main point of the sermon? So I'll tell you, the, the, main, the first version of the main point of the sermon is that I came up with this, this week. We, we tossed it out, and you'll understand why when I say it is. Dance with the one who brung you. Dance with the one who brung you. Stick, stick with the one who got you here. Well, here's the better version. You're preserved by the one who loves you. The one who loves you, Jesus Christ, your God, your Lord and your Savior, the one who made you his. He's preserving you. He's keeping you holding you. Jesus at one point tells, uh, tells the people around him in, in, in the gospel of John, he goes, listen, whoever my father puts in my hand, no one gets to take them out. Not even them. Not Satan, not the world, not even them. Once you're in my hand, my father's put you there and I keep you. You're mine. I, I licked you, you're mine. I call dibs. So you're preserved. If you're a Christian, you're preserved by the one who loves you. Therefore, Man, persevere. Persevere with the one that you love, who is Jesus. Stick with it. You can persevere. You can remain in your faith. You can stay a Christian. You can continue obeying and walking with the Lord. And you're limping or he has to pick you up and just simply carry you. But you can stick with the Lord. Regardless of what you face in this life, you can stick with him. For one reason and one reason only. And it doesn't have anything to do with your stick with itness. Your perseverance has nothing to do, absolutely zilch and nada, to do with your internal fortitude, your strength, your mind. Your, it has everything to do, you will persevere. It has everything to do with his preservation of you. If he's holding you, then you'll, you'll keep being held. That's the big idea today. So let's take a look at the text. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, I want you to write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David. We'll see that reference in a second, where that comes from. Who opens and no one will shut. Who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. See that phrase, I know your works? Last week when he said it to Sardis, it rang a little differently than now. Hey, uh, I see what you're doing. This week is, hey, I see what you're doing. I see what you're going through. I see your effort. I see your aim. I see your goal. We start here with where Jesus starts with his identity. Every letter to every church, he starts off by going, uh, to the angel, tell him who's writing this. And he keeps on referencing back to chapter 1 of Revelation where he gives to John two spectacular demonstrations of his identity, of his, of his glory, of his personhood. Here, Jesus identifies himself as the Holy One. The, ho holy, the word holy means apart, set apart, other than, different. The word holy, when, in, in terms of God, means there's no one like him. There's no one like him in power or eternality, no one like him in perfection or beauty or value. There's no one like him. He stands alone, the only true God. He says, I am the, <laughs> the true one, the one you can believe. The whole world is full of gods. The whole world is full of philosophies. The whole world is full of different points of views and, and, and world views. I'm the true one. I'm the actual one. Well, I just don't know. There are a lot of ways to God, and they're just, it seems kind of difficult to figure out who's got the truth, and you Christians seem pretty arrogant to believe that you guys got the, the market cornered on truth. We're not aiming for arrogance, but we're just, we do. We don't have the market cornered on truth. The truth 
has the, the market cornered. It's Jesus who is the true one. And then he says, this, I'm, I'm the one who has the key of David. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to put one verse on the screen. But this comes from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, the prophet Isaiah. And there's the promise to the people of God, the, the, the Hebrews, the Jews of the Old Testament, that they, there's basically two things on the way. The Babylonians are going to come and attack and take over, and they don't want to believe that. And so Isaiah is prophesying to them, and God tells Isaiah to tell them, uh, basically give a, gives them a description of, of a Christ figure. Let's, let's read verse 22 of Isaiah 22. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. See, the city of Jerusalem in that time, hundreds of years before the people of Philadelphia were getting this, they faced great trial and tribulation. Right? That Babylonians were supposed to at some point come and overthrow them. And in fact, ha- that this, some of this had already started to, to happen. And there were two chief executive powers uh, in their nation. One of them was selfish and evil. He, he didn't love and he didn't obey God. And he was leading others in the kingdom away from God. And then there was another chief executive under the king. And his name was Eliakim. And he was godly and he feared the Lord. And Eliakim, the key of David, would be given. That's who, that's who the, the prophet's speaking about in verse 22. Eliakim, he fears the Lord, loves the Lord, wants to obey the Lord. He's a good leader. I'm going to give the key to the city. I'm going to give the key, the authority to open and shut to him. A key, this is the authority of God to open and close doors, access, gifts, power, honor, Refuge. A key is given to someone trustworthy. We, we have a building here that our church meets in, and we have keys. And we think pretty carefully before we hand a key to someone. Because the key to the building means you have access to this building. Uh, we have, if you're listening and like to steal, we don't have anything worthwhile here. Nothing you could sell on eBay or anywhere. Just, just pass over us, okay? But we have some stuff that costs some money. And we have some stuff in here that, that means something to us, and it's useful to us as, as a church family. So if you're given a key, that means you have access to come in here. And with the key means you have access to be able to let other people in or to keep other people out. You want to be careful about who you give a key to your house to, right? Because now they have authority. They have access. And in, the, in this life, we, we pass by a lot of doors, don't we? Walking in this life, there's a lot of doors that we we go by, and obviously I don't mean literally, I mean metaphorically. This door is marked true love. This door is marked opportunity. This door is marked career. This door is marked health. This one's marked wealth. This one is having a child. This one is forgiveness and reconciliation. This one is new relationships. This one is repaired relationships. And, and how many of those doors, so often, we're, we're deeply desiring that door to be opened, and it's just not open. It seems shut, even though it seems like so many around us just get to stroll right through those doors. How many of you have been there? Maybe, maybe you are a woman who profoundly, deeply desires a kid, and at, at, at the moment, it doesn't look like the Lord's letting you, letting you have a baby. And it becomes a very difficult and painful thing because it looks like that door just, it's a revolving door, right? And, and there's just women running through that door having babies to the point that it becomes very bitter in your mouth. It becomes difficult. Maybe you're tempted to believe it's impossible to be happy for, excited for, sharing the joy of a friend or even a family member who is having a baby and the Lord has, seems to be seeing it fit as to shut that door to you. And especially it grinds against us. It grinds our gears. It makes us very upset and hurt when we see evil, wicked doers, people who don't fear the Lord, don't love him. They go walking through doors, and they're all flung wide open, and they seem to prosper. Eliakim is a Christ figure, a picture of Jesus, the Messiah and Lord, what he would be and what he would do. There's a door. It's the door of doors. And it's a narrow one, the Bible says, the door to God's kingdom, it's a, it's a narrow door, but it's the door of doors. And this one isn't marked opportunity or acceptance or approval. or any, It's marked salvation. It's marked reconciliation between God 
and sinful men. And having this door unlocked to you and open to you, the promise of never having it shut or barred to you no matter what, that's the door you want. If you believe in this Jesus and the one who's saying, I got the keys of David and this this door, no one has the authority to open or shut except me, and I'm holding it open for you. If that's true for you, then there's, the, there's at least a hopeful possibility that no matter what doors in this life that you walk by that remain shut, no matter what doors you never get to walk through. Well, I always wanted a kid. I always wanted to get married. And, and, and I, I wanted that job. And I wanted to be someone. And I wanted to write that book. And I really wanted to see the Grand Canyon. I really wanted to, to, to have that last word with that person. It doesn't matter what doors remain shut. As long as that one stays open, then that's the only door that really matters. Because going through that one means that love and opportunity, significance and wealth and health, family and reconciliation, the versions of that that you really need are behind that one. It's behind that one because that door is marked salvation. They're all found with and in God. I, I haven't named a single sinful desire. I haven't named a single sinful desire, have I? The desire for love for opportunity, for significance, for wealth, health, family, reconciliation, good relationships. None of those things are sinful to want. They're not sinful to pray for and pursue and work, work, work for. But they're only the version of that that you really need in the way that you need it, in the way that you ought to get it, it's, it's on the other side of that door, the door of doors. They're all found with and in God. Those who enter this door will find at last the one person that they need love from most, God. And he does indeed love them. They'll find that the most important person ever is paying attention to them and cares deeply in a significant way about them. If you're looking for significance, find your significance in the most significant person in the world saying, hey, you're important to me. You matter to me. I love you. With this God, they'll always have what they need and when they need it. That through this door is eternal life with a resurrection body that brings wholeness to body and mind. Through that door. That with this God, through that door, you get a better eternal family with reconciled, joyful, trustworthy relationships. That walking through this door means the full realization that all that you've ever thought, felt, spoken, and done is now forgiven. And God now approves of you. Through that door is reconciliation with God. If you get reconciliation with God, it doesn't matter who still will hold bitterness against you, even legitimately so, for what you've done. God himself no longer holds it against you. And not only are you even with God, not only no longer does God hold it against you, but now through that door you find that all of the approval, all of the inheritance, all of the glory that the Lord God the Father has on his son, you now have a share in that. You're not moved when you become a Christian. You go through that door. You're not simply square and even between you and God. If there is a scale, and there's not a scale, but if there is a scale where you're bad and your sins are down here weighing it down, well then fine. Because of Jesus, the scale goes boom. And this side isn't weighed down by your good acts or good deeds and your good morals and your, your own righteous moral perfection. It's weighed down by Jesus's on your behalf. Through that door, all that's ever been done to you, all that's ever been wronged on you, all that's ever dirtied you, everything that's ever cheapened you by others, it's washed away. And you find through that door, that you're not damaged goods. You're not cheap. You're not a dirty girl. You're not a broken man. You're not worthy of being tossed out to the side to get whatever scraps that cheap, dirty, iniquitous people. No, you're washed clean through that door. And Jesus says, I'm the one with the key to that door. And I open it, and if I open it for you, no one's allowed to shut it for you. And if I shut it, no one can open it themselves. So, under the main point, here's, here's big idea number one, I guess. By the way, I didn't number them on my notes, so when we get to round three or four, I'm going to go, uh, number next, point number next, okay? Here's the next point. God preserves and reserves 
the open door for you. God preserves and reserves the open door for you. The door that you need, that door is held open. I, I, I've only been to like one club. Like, you know, club, right? Glow sticks and people who smell like booze, right? I've only been to one club. It was in college. It was in Miami. So I went big, all right, Miami. And I hated it. Like, it was on a college band trip with the Georgia Tech band. And it was like, this is terrible. Everyone is sweaty and drunk. And this is frightening, right? Too many glow sticks. Um, I only went, but I, but I saw the proverbial, the proverbial velvet rope line, right? You guys know, you, at least you've seen movies, you stand in the rope line, all right, and if you're important enough, rich enough, or pretty enough, you get to go to the front of the line. The door gets held open for you. If you're not, if you're normal like me, then they may, you may or may not get in. Jesus preserves and reserves the most important door, and he holds it open for you. This is the Jesus who speaks to the Philadelphian church and to us this morning. To you who seem to have little power and very little significance, just getting by, you're humble, you're not that big of a deal. To those who are surrounded by the powerful, godless, those who don't seem to actually fear or care about the Lord and they seem to prosper just fine while you struggle, to you, and this is the most important to note, to you who humbly keep God's word and find your satisfaction and safety in the gospel of Jesus, in the word of God, the promise of God, the person of God in Jesus, you're the one, you're the church that he's speaking to. See, I want to make special note here. There's no inherent good attached to being a big church or a small church. As a pastor, I often hear people at least, at least hint at the idea, oh, smaller churches are better churches. They're more faithful churches. Those big churches, they're all a mile wide and an inch deep. It's better. God approves of and likes small churches and the big churches. And then I, I'll hear from other people, big churches, they're growing. Clearly, God is doing something there. Them small churches, they, they don't grow. They stay small. Clearly, they're not preaching the gospel. No one's getting saved and no one's getting baptized. So big church equals good. No, small church equals good. I'm going to go yes and no because it, no, it, it has nothing to do with the size of the church, big or small. There's nothing inherently good or bad attached to being rich or poor. There's nothing automatically more noble about being poorer than there is about being wealthier. There's nothing inherently good or bad about it. There are godly rich and godly poor, and there are ungodly rich and there are ungodly poor. There are godly large churches that the Lord is very pleased with, and there are very ungodly large churches where Jesus is going to go, I don't, know most, I don't know most of you guys. And the same goes for smaller churches. Jesus judges based off of what he can see and that no one else can. First Samuel chapter 16, the Lord sends the, 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 the priest and prophet Samuel out to go pick out the next king that the Lord is going to identify. And they roll out a whole bunch of tall, good-looking Ryan Reynolds and Hugh Jackman-looking studs. And the Lord says, none of these jokers. And the dad's like, wait, what? These... these any one of these guys could be king over any kingdom. And the word of the Lord comes and says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart, and he sees this little church. They could have been big, they could have been powerful, but in this case, they were small and they were humble. And they were really needing the Lord because they were really small and really humble. And you can see their heart. I know your works. I know the works of your own hearts. And they have not denied Jesus' name. They don't try to love the world and Jesus, too. They're not trying to love the world and Jesus, too. They're not trying to be holy and cool. Good luck with that. Their heart and their appetite, their desire and orientation is to be right with the Lord, whether the world around them likes it or not. So there's no little pinch of incense to the Roman emperor just to get by, just to be, it's, there, there's no compromise because this is the cost of living and doing business in this world. And God clearly understands how hard it is to follow and obey him and still be able to earn a living. So of course, come on, he, he knows and he recognizes there's gotta be some sort of compromise here with the world. They, they don't believe that. There's no modifying the message of the gospel to accommodate this or that political or social pressure. There's no modifying of the gospel message. There's no modifying of God's word 
as to whether or not the church is doing well financially or it's not doing well financially, and they're going to twist the word to try to manipulate and get the, get the wallets open. They're not doing any of that. Perhaps, perhaps, that's, that's your signal that at the moment I'm engaging in pastoral speculation just, just for this moment. But perhaps, perhaps this little church's gospel would have sounded like communism or Marxism to some, and it would have sounded like moralistic traditional religion to others. Too liberal for them, too conservative for them. So the doors, the access to influence and acceptance, the ability to expand ministry and reach more markets, those doors may very likely have been closed to the church in Philadelphia. In modern day, that would mean the doors to having Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and Reddit and Fox News and CNN and even other churches, those doors are all closed because you just don't fit the narrative. This church and possibly God's church, because they... They won't deny the name of Jesus and, and keeping his word, his whole world, his, his whole world, word. Man, you find yourself kind of homeless. No one kind of knows what to do with you. So the doors remain shut. And they, they, they're keeping his word, he says, his whole word. Listen, this is what I mean by his whole word. The one that says to bless those who curse you, which is not the American way. The one that says to give generously to the poor, and to not return evil for evil, which, again, is not the American way. To not give in to lust and sexual promiscuity. To not look upon a woman with lust, whether it's on HBO or Cinemax or on TV or Instagram or on your Facebook page because you have friends who went to the beach. And now you see their bathing suit photos. The word that says don't do that. Preserve your eyes, preserve your heart, preserve your mind. The same word that says to value and defend the lives of all image bearers of God. And that means, for those of you on one side, the unborn. To fight for, defend, and preserve the lives of the unborn. Women's rights. Anyone who wants to stand up for 50% of the babies who are born who are women and stand up and say they're being killed without their consent, Image bearers of God who are being murdered, someone's got to stand up and defend them. They're, they bear the image of God, whether those babies will grow up to be Christians or not. They bear the image of God and every soul belongs to the Lord. The same word that says this also says that we're supposed to defend and protect and look out for the dark-skinned and the sojourning, traveling stranger and foreigner. Yeah, the same whole word. The word that says Jesus is the only way to find God's love, that you are a sinner and you are born unworthy of God's family, that you must tell the truth and you must not lie, that you must obey and you must respect your parents. The same word that says you must obey and submit to the ungodly and unrighteous governing authorities that God himself has placed over you and you're supposed to respect them even if you disagree with them and seek to get them voted out. You are to respect them and submit to them wherever they are not requiring you to collide with and disobey the Lord. The same word that does say that, hey man, all lives do matter. The same word that says we ought to stand up, speak up, and preach the gospel when it seems to some that some lives don't seem to matter that much. And we ought, to, we ought to preach and obey all of God's word. Because all of your bones in your body matter. And when your arm's broken, that's the one that we need to pay attention to. This whole word of God. And if you preach it, and if you obey it, and then you walk in it, you're going to find yourself politically and socially homeless. Because to them, you're too far this way. And to them, you're too far this way. The whole word of God in which we do not deny his name, but we obey him. So I, I want to tell us, if you're a member of this church, I'm speaking to you with authority as your pastor. If the doors, if you find yourself in social and political exile among your friends and family and the greater world around you, that might just be a very, very good thing. 
if the doors of the world aren't open to you, but instead are being closed because of your trust in Jesus and his whole word, that, that might very well be a good sign because the Bible itself says that we are exiles, we're aliens in this world, that this isn't our home. If things are going the way they're supposed to look, then Jesus goes, well, you're not greater than the master, and they hate me, your master. How do you think they're going to feel about you when you live and act like and love your master? And Jesus says there is a door, the most important door, that he will keep open for us, and no one, no matter how important or powerful, can shut it and keep us from it if we are in him, if our faith, our trust, our satisfaction is found in him. Back to the text, verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not. They lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. They will learn that I have loved you. Here's the second point, the second sub-point. God's, God's love for you is preserved, and it will be held up for others to see. God's love for you is preserved. He is preserving his love. No one can touch it. You can't mar it. You can't scratch it. You can't ruin God's love for you. Right? For those of you who have been saved, you said a prayer, you became a Christian, and in that time you tried to do a better job of reading your Bible and praying more and not looking at this and not doing that and not touching him and not touching her and not hanging out with those folks and not saying this kind of word and, and saying this kind of word, right? And then you find yourself stumbling back into sin at different points. You, we're tempted to believe that we've really scratched and torn up and broken and messed up the love that God could have for us, Right? What we need to remember is when Jesus died on the cross for you 2,000 years ago, all of your sin was future sin as far as he was concerned. Friends, I've got sin in my life, in my past, and I have sin ahead of me. You have sin ahead of you. And thank, thank God that the very love that saved you is a perfect and untarnishable love from the Lord through his grace and mercy that covers all of your future sin because all of it is future sin from the cross 2,000 years ago. God's love for you is preserved and it will be held up for others to see. This is a relationship you see right now in, in this context for these Christians in Philadelphia between them and the, and the Jews. The Christians there in this context, in this time, they were formerly accepted Christians these Christians were once accepted as a Jewish sect, a, a Jewish subgroup of the Jewish faith. And they were once included in the synagogues. They were allowed to come into the temple and worship with their Hebrew cousins. They were allowed to go into the synagogue in the different cities and worship God with the scrolls of Isaiah, the scrolls of Jeremiah, and they were accepted. Their names were included on the family rolls. Every synagogue would have, a, would have a family role. These are the families, these are the people of God in our church, in our family, in a, of our synagogue. They were used to being accepted, and now they were being struck from those lists, and now Christians, especially here in Philadelphia, uh, clearly in Philadelphia, were being barred from the synagogue. The Jews were saying, you are not of us. You are not of us. You, you, you are not accepted. And, and the acceptance... And the, the flexibility and, and, and liberty that the Romans give to us to worship Jehovah and not have to bow down to Caesar, you know what? We're kicking you out from under that umbrella. And we're going to tell them that too. So these Christians, they would have found themselves shut out of their family synagogues. Their Jewish fathers would have locked them out of their family homes. And their families would have told them that their faith in Jesus excluded them from God's very people. You're no longer a child of Abraham. But Jesus assures them, as he does for us, that no matter what love or acceptance we lose from others in this life, we have his. We have his. And not only that, but God's people will be glorified one day. I was raised in kind of a theological milieu, if I can use a fancy word, kind of a, a theological pool, which I swimmed in, swam in, swam in, yeah, I bathed in, which w has been very cautious and wary of the idea that Christians in God's kingdom will be, will be glorified. 
in God's kingdom, Romans 8, among other places, is very clear that we share in the inheritance of our big brother and king and Lord Jesus. And a portion, an inheritance of that same glory lands on us. And just like a father who's proud of his son and glorifies him, posts on Facebook, picks him up on his shoulders, has the birthday party and goes, there's my boy. You see my boy? That's my boy. That's my kid. That's my kid. I'm proud of him. Right? As the, as the dad lifts up and glorifies his son and everyone sees the son, do you, know, do you know what the dad gets? Glory as a father. Enjoyment as he's glorifying and raising his kid up. That is the promise and the guarantee of those who are in Christ. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And those who have not loved you, they will then at some point have to face that I love you. I love you. I use the analogy all the time. You're trying to learn how to play guitar. You're going, plink, 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 plink. All right, it's really terrible, and no girls want to date you, right? It's just, you're, you're just not good, and your friends are making fun of you. They're thinking, hey, they're saying, hey, man, put that aside. You're no good. You don't have any skill, man. It's really embarrassing. I use this analogy all the time, right? And Dave Grohl just pops up out of nowhere, right, from the Foo Fighters, right? right? And he comes walking by, and he's like this rock god. And he's like, hey, man, I like that. Oh, you're playing one of my covers. Oh, cool pulls out his guitar out from a back satchel he's got, and he plays with you, and no matter how, how, how terrible you think he, you are, Dave Grohl goes, hey, man, I like what you're doing. You keep with it. I like seeing new guitar players. Man, let's jam together. Let me show you some things. Oh, man, this is neat. Hey, man, I'm glad to meet you. Hey, here's my cell phone number. Now we're buddies, right? And he does it there in front of all your friends who are naysaying you and didn't believe in you. Does it matter now at all by any means what your friends or family or dad or anyone ever said about your guitar playing and how you should give it up? No, because Dave Grohl thinks I'm great. Dave Grohl likes me and accepts me. And he just did it in front of all those who rejected me and mocked me and didn't believe. He did it in front of them. Because here's why he didn't do it in secret. Because if he shows up in your bedroom one night like some Jack Black movie in a vision, right? He's like, I'm Dave Grohl and I think you're great. Keep with it. And no one's going to believe you. Hey, Dave Grohl came to my bedroom last night and told me I'm awesome. I need to keep playing guitar. Okay, you need help, man. No, he does it in public. He does it in person. And the promise by God is that even in this life, no matter who rejects you, mocks you, closes the door, shuts you out, there will come a time on a long enough timeline, once that door, you go through it, there will be a time when God before all the saints in heaven, before his angels and before the legions of the disbelieving world, he will, he will show them, I love, I love her and she's mine. Y'all, y'all see this dude? Mine, I love him. He, he's, he's with me. I, I like him. I want him. He's, he's part of my crew. He's in my family. It's my, that's my boy. They obeyed Jesus in not fearing those who could kill the body. This church in Philadelphia, they, Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear him who has authority over the life and death of the body and the soul. So they, they obeyed him in that. Verse 10, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon, so hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Do you know what's really cool about the Bible? It was written by God, and God writes really cool stuff, and it all makes sense together as a whole word, right? So there's all these references, and he goes, we like that in music. My, my, my oldest child, Maggie, loves musicals, right? Like Broadway musicals. And like even to the point that she likes like the musicals none of y'all ever heard of, right? Weird musicals that they, like they were off Broadway. They were eight minutes long, right? And you're like, what? Okay, cool. But the cool thing about musicals, musically, is that they have like four or five or six different themes, and they get woven through the whole musical, and and every time they get woven through, there's a little bit of a different meaning and a little bit of a different twist, whether it's the lyric or whether it's the, 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 the actual notes of the song, and they just get woven through, and they keep on referencing back. There's just this cool thread of music and theme throughout the whole music. Really good musicals do that, right? God does He's an artist. And so here... Here, God's repeating himself. It's a refrain, right? 
I think I'm using the right musical word. Our worship team will rebuke me later if I'm not, if I'm not using that word right. Jesus has told us. He's told them to be patient and endure, and, and endure. Where? Hebrews chapter 10. I'm really excited. I'm sweating. None of you are saying amen. It's probably because I'm not breathing. I'll breathe. Cool. Hebrews chapter 10. Take a look at this. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, when after, after you heard the gospel and believed, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. So if it didn't happen to you, you were partners with those who were being hurt and mocked and persecuted and rejected by the, by the city, by the culture, by family, and by friends. If you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, and when he's talking about, he's not talking about they didn't set up home security alarms and local robbers and thieves were getting, you know, he's talking about the government. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding, an, an abiding one, one that can't be taken from you. Do you know why it can't be taken from you? It's shut behind the door that Jesus has the key to. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. Do not throw away your crown of confidence, of faith which has a great reward for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Do you know why you need endurance? Do you, not, do you know why you would ever need endurance? Because there's stuff you got to endure, right? So, so I preach generally for about an hour. It looks like we're going to go about three today. Um, but if it's really good, and it's really long, no one really feels like they're enduring much because like the attention's grabbing and this is great and I'm eating a great meal and this is wonderful, just give me more, right? Like my proof is like someone made like $87 trillion about 10 or 11 years ago on a three and a half hour movie about blue naked aliens running through an Amazon jungle planet, right? Right, defending their tree and unobtainium minerals and people ate it up and it sat in the theaters for three and a half hours. No one felt like they had to endure it, well, Maybe some of us do. We're like, no, I endured that. Okay? But if you love it and it's easy and it's fun, you're not enduring anything. You need endurance because sometimes you, there's stuff that you have to endure. It's tough. And Jesus says you need endurance so that when you have done the will of God, when you have done the w will of God in the face of suffering, persecution, and doors being closed to those who are aligned with Jesus, when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and then the coming one will come and will not delay. Does that sound like Revelation, the second advent of Jesus? He will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. You know what happens if you shrink back, if you don't persevere? You'll be found that you weren't preserved by God in the first place, and God only preserves those who are his. This is not a, if you don't do this, then I won't do this. He's going, if you don't do this, it'll just show who you're really with in the first place. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Destroyed by who? By God. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Jesus says, don't throw away your confidence in me, salvation, my authority, my love for me. You, have, you may be plundered, you might be mocked, you might have doors shut in your face, but next point, dun, 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 Jesus preserves your inheritance behind the door to his kingdom. The door that no one else is allowed to open but him. And he's got the key, and he knows who to let in, and he knows who to shut out. And you need to endure because you've kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial. Jesus says he'll keep us from the hour of trial. And what's that hour like? It's a time in which he will try the whole world. He's going to try those who dwell on the earth. He's going to judge the earth. God will. He's going to judge the earth. He's going to put it on trial. See, Jesus is an attorney, and when you're in the courtroom at the table as a defendant, he's your defense attorney. And when Satan or those who reject the Lord are at the table in the courtroom, Jesus himself is the prosecutor. And he's going to lay, 
He's going to lay before the court his case. He'll prosecute his case and hold up the world's rejection of him as evidence. In the end, when Jesus tries the world, judgment is guaranteed. Condemnation. I don't think this is a promise that the church is going to be spared difficulty, tribulation, and pain. I don't believe that. So if we're going, you know, oh, okay, are we in the uh, tribulation thing? Are we pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, seven years, how it's split up? If we're there, I'm just going to go, if there is a seven-year literal thing, I'm, I'm probably a, a post-tribulation guy. Not because I want to be. I don't like pain. I don't like persecution. I don't like fear and trembling and worrying about what the world or the government or other people are going to do to us or me or my family because we're Christians. I don't, I don't want to be. But throughout the Bible and indeed throughout the history of God's people, his church, he hasn't seemed to have deployed a strategy of keeping his people out of trouble, but pe- keeping his people while they're in trouble. Keeping them through it. He, when he frees his people from Egypt, they go to the wilderness because that's where he's going to sanctify them. He's going to bless them in the wilderness. How well do they do when they get to the land of promise? Spoiler alert, spoiler alert if you have not gotten to Judges or even Joshua, not too good. People's, God's people, a lot of the time, this side of heaven, we don't tend to do so well with doing really well. But God's people flourish and we are purified and we are sanctified and his glory is shown when when we have need of him and we know that we have need of him. John chapter 17 and verse 15, when Jesus prays for his people, when he prays for his disciples and his church the night of his arrest, the night before his crucifixion, he, he asks his father this. He says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world I don't ask that you spare them pain and tribulation and trial and difficulty. I'm not asking you to make the road super smooth and easy for them. And I'm not asking for you to miraculously take them to heaven so they don't have to deal with anything difficult anymore. No, no, no. Jesus prays for them and says, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. So to reference back to Hebrews chapter 10, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. You need endurance. You need endurance. You keep my word about patient endurance, and you will, found, you will find yourself to be one who is being kept by me. If you find yourself to be one I'm preserving... I'm the one who loves you and I'm preserving you. You will find yourself to be the one, you'll, you'll find yourself to be one who's persevering with the one you love, Jesus says. Final subpoint is this Jesus preserves us from the judgment of the world. We're not, we're not promised on this side of heaven, we're not promised escape or relief from the troubles of this world. We're, we are promised to be preserved from the destruction and judgment God has on his enemies on this world. He'll keep us. We won't be kept from trial. We'll be kept from judgment. We get to the last few verses. Jesus says in verse 11, I am coming soon. That's really good news. That's really good news. Pretty awesome. Uh, Y'all ever been to a wedding? You ever been to a wedding that started late? Right? 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 And, may, like, and maybe you're behind the scenes, you're in the wedding party, and either the bride or groom is nowhere to be seen. Everyone's getting a little nervous, right? Right? The, the, the bride's father over here, sweating, little pacing, getting a little nervous, thinking about how much money he's going to get out of the hide of this boy who isn't showing up, right? Right? And it's good news when they go, oh, he's here. There he is. <laughs> here he is. Here we go. Cool. Oh, there she is. Okay, took a little long with the hair, but you look great. Let's get you married, right? It's good news. Oh, they're here. Okay, they're here. Jesus goes, behold, I am coming soon. He's the bridegroom coming for the bride. He says, I'm coming soon. 
Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes out from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. You get, looks like you get three or four things written on you. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. Here's the promise. Promise number one, I'm coming soon. When I talk to newly engaged couples, one of my first questions is, one of my first questions is, cool, how long is this engagement going to last? Right? And if they're a member of our church and I am their pastor, then I assert a little bit of more authoritative pastoral advice, and I go, two years? Excuse me, why don't you stay here, young lady? Uh, come here. Hey, man, two years? Why two years? You going to marry her? Do you want to marry her? Does she want to marry you? Why two years? What kind of wedding are you throwing? What does that mean? Because as long as you should be engaged is as long as it takes to get the wedding ready. That's as long. Why? Because we're Christians and we're trying to do things the way Jesus does. And Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom, you're my bride, and I'm coming soon. I'm not taking any longer than it takes for me to set everything up. There's no two, three, four, five year limbo of engagement between the Lord and his bride. We're just, he's kind of taking his time, I guess. He's just kind of dilly-dallying. I don't know, maybe. I mean, I, I have... How many women have I known that they're engaged, they're the fiance, they, they got everything picked out, their dad's ready to make it rain, and, but the boy's dragging his feet about when we're going to get married. It's going to take two years. No, no. He says, I'm coming soon, and I'm not taking any longer that it has to for me to have everything set up perfectly and properly and rightly. He's not dilly-dallying. He's not wasting any time. Next promise, I'm going to make you part of my temple, meaning you're always included. You're in the house. You're in my place. I'll make you a pillar. Pillars are pretty important. Anyone have, any of you guys ever built anything that required a pillar? What happens if that pillar's not so good or gets knocked out? <clears throat> right? Bad news. God goes, I'm going to, I promise, I'll make you a pillar. I'll make you significant. You'll be, you'll be part of my people, part of my temple, part of my family, part of my church, and you matter. You'll never be cast out of my synagogue. Your place with me will always be secure. Jesus is going to ride on you. Hey, Pastor Matt, tattoos, sinful or not? There's your answer right there, but cool. Let's go to the Bible, right? I don't know if this is a tattoo. I don't know if it's like an ink mark on your body. But here's what I know. In some significant, meaningful way that is a really happy thing for us, God writes his name on you. Mine. He gives you his last name, just like, again, bride and groom, just like when the bride, for the first time ever, gets to write Mrs. Shannon Ford, right? New name, new family, Mrs. Randy Porter. Felt good, didn't it? It's cool, right? I'm not going to go through the whole church of people I've married, okay? But God puts his name on you. Jesus puts his name on you in your mind. Listen. More powerful than writing your name on the lunch Tupperware at work so that no one's allowed to take your stuff out of the fridge. And even maybe more seriously, in some countries around the world, even today, in some countries around the world, having an American passport does open doors for you. If you're in another nation and there's difficulty or trouble or you need something, in some countries, even today, having an American passport open doors, opens doors for you, grants you safety, grants you sanctuary, grants you asylum. And if you're an American... That passport gets you into the embassy, and no one's allowed to touch you because you're an American, and you belong to who? America. This promise is far greater than that. This gets you through the rope line, into the door, accepted, approved of, wanted, and the one in charge of the whole thing goes, ah, you're here, everybody. There's my kid, there's my boy, there's my daughter, there's my little princess. His promise is far greater than any of these analogies I'm coming up with. Those are the promises. And there's only one command to this church that he has no rebuke for. Only one command. He says, hold fast to what you have so that no one gets to steal your crown. Do you know how no one's going to steal your crown? Persevere with the one who has loved you 
with his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Persevere. Stick with God. And don't deny his name. And don't compromise. And don't tolerate heresy and sin. Even if toying with those things seems to jiggle the, do- the handle of the door you want to get through. It seems to be working a little bit. And I really need a husband. And I really need a wife. And I really need this job. And I really need these people to like me. And I really need some more money. Those doors, if they're closed to you because you're obeying and sticking with and remaining in faith in Jesus, then those are the doors that need to stay shut. Whatever's behind that door that you think you'd so desperately need, and maybe you really do need it on this side of heaven, you'll have what you need because you have a Father in heaven who loves you, and it never fails you, and it gives you what you need when you need it. And the one door, the door of doors, is open over there. And anything and everything that you could hope for, need, want, or desire, the best way, the right way, the only way to get it is in him. I guess I'll close with this. I want to be careful for us to avoid using God and the open door to get the stuff behind the doors. Because then we're going to find out, yeah, the door is actually shut to us. Because we didn't find him lovely and wonderful. We just wanted his stuff. This is, this is what a church wants to hear. This is what our church needs to hear. So I'll just close with that last verse. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Lord has said to the churches. That you're preserved by the one who loves you. So persevere with the one you love.